Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Great to see you today. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll get there in a little while. Back in 1975, there was an author, um, a novelist, Walker Percy, and he wrote a book which was really kind of a collection of philosophical essays, and he begins the book with eight pages of questions. And uh, let me just read a couple of them to you. He asks, why does man feel so sad in the 20th century? Why do people feel so bad in the very age when more than in any other age he succeeded in satisfying his needs and making over the world for his own use? Why do people often feel bad in good environments and good in bad environments? Why do people often feel so bad in good environments that they prefer bad environments? Why does someone often feel better in a bad environment? Why is it that a man whose needs and drives are satisfied, who has a good home, a loving wife and family, and a good job, who enjoys unprecedented cultural and recreational facilities, why does that man often feel bad without knowing why? And those are interesting questions. He wrote that in 1975. That's 46 years ago, but I think those questions are still valid today, maybe even more so, because they all deal with this uh, this kind of malaise of discouragement that seems to move in and out of our lives more often than we would like to admit. Now, I'm not saying that I have all this figured out. I don't, but I do want to look at what I would consider one facet of this problem. I think that uh, you would agree that most of our lives have become so busy, uh, so full of activity, so full of desires, so full of opportunities, so full of information that when something goes wrong, it can easily throw us into a tailspin. Like most people get married thinking that this man, this woman is the one you want to spend the rest of your life Uh, with. This is the one who's going to fill you with satisfaction and joy and meaning, and you think this is going to last forever. But over time, you get busy. You might have babies coming along. You have bills pile up. You don't seem to be able to talk without arguing, and you start drifting apart. And before you know it, as the old song goes, you've lost that loving feeling. Everything becomes functional. You do your part. Your spouse does their part, but there's no meaningful relationship. Just two people doing life, covering all the bases, doing the kinds of things that good parents are supposed to do, but it's functional. It's just going through the most motions, and it leaves you feeling empty. It leaves you with unmet expectations. Same thing can happen at work. We start out really excited about a particular job. We like the people that we work with. We like the salary and the benefits. We like our boss. The work gives us a sense of purpose and meaning in life. We feel like we're making a difference in some way. We experience a certain degree of success, and we expect that things will just keep getting better and better. But somewhere along the way, something happens, and things don't go as planned the pressure starts building in this particular job and this job that you once saw as a as a perfect fit for you now you just see it as a rut something you can barely tolerate you see the same thing with friends you ever had a relationship with someone you thought you could share anything with I mean, you consider this person to be a trusted confidant, and, uh, and you shared things with that person that you seldom share with anyone, 
as in some, some of your deepest feelings, some of your, your deepest struggles, only to find out that that person did not hold the things that you told them in confidence. That ever happened to you? Or you thought you were very close to someone only to find out when they had a get-together with all their best friends, you weren't included. And you realized that the relationship really was more one way, your way to them, not their way to you. And it also happens in our relationships with God. It can happen in prayer. I mean, you know, you pray, but you know, you're not like ringing the doorbell of heaven every day to ask a whole list, litany of, of, of prayer requests. So when this problem came into your life that really rocked your world, you began to pray diligently for God to do something about it. And you ask other people to pray with you about it, but, but God didn't answer your prayer. At, at least he didn't answer the prayer the way that you expected and you felt this almost overwhelming disappointment with God. Now, these kind of scenarios are common in all of us, and there you can add a couple hundred more, like investments gone bad, vacations being canceled, children rebelling, new cars a lemon. There's all kinds of things. There's, there's almost no end to the things that leave us with unmet expectations. And so it's no wonder that we feel like giving up sometimes. Sooner or later, your disappointment, your discouragement turns toward God. In his excellent book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey writes, for many people, there is a large gap between what they expect from their faith and what they experience. From a steady diet of books and sermons and personal testimonies, all promising triumph and success, they learn to expect dramatic evidence of God working in their lives. And if they do not see such evidence, they feel disappointment, betrayal, and often guilt. You've been there? I've, I've been there. We've all, we all have expectations about certain things. Now, I'm not saying that these expectations are necessarily good or bad. I'm just making the observation that we all have lots of ex expectations about lots of things. And I'm saying that expectations are so much a part of us that we really don't question if, the, if those expectations are valid. We ex accept our expectations as part of us. They're true, they're factual, they're deserved, they're expected. And as a result, we easily become discouraged when things don't go the way we expect. Or you could put it another way. You could say it like my friend Raymond Causey used to say it. When your experience doesn't match your expectations, the natural result is discouragement. When your experience doesn't match your expectations, it often results in discouragement. And how, how highly you value a certain expectation determines the degree of the discouragement. How tightly you hold to a particular expectation determines the degree of pain or frustration you experience if that expectation goes unmet. What I'm saying is the more expectations you have and the more tightly you hold on to those expectations, the more disappointment you, uh, you will feel when your experience doesn't match your expectations. Now, for many of us, our most basic expectation goes something like this. If I get it reasonably right, then things will go reasonably well. If I get it reasonably right, things will go reasonably well. Like you do your part in marriage, you get it reasonably right, and things should go reasonably well. Get it reasonably right at work, and things should go reasonably well. 
Get it reasonably right with your friends and they should treat you a certain way. Get it reasonably right in your relationship with God and things should turn out reasonably well. I mean, not, not that we believe in a health, wealth, and, and prosperity gospel, but we do tend to believe that if we, you know, if we're fairly serious about uh, practicing biblical principles, then we can expect things to go reasonably well, reasonably well. So you, I know you're saying, but Charlie, are you just saying we should all become like Buddhists and, you know, like try to eliminate all desire? No, no I'm, not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. There's a difference, by the way, between expectations and desires. From a Christian perspective, desire looks forward to something but holds it loosely. Desire recognizes that the fulfillment of what is hoped for may be beyond our control to bring it about. Expectation, on the other hand, looks forward to something and assumes the fulfillment will come because you've done your part to make it happen. But life in a broken world doesn't work that way. And the Christian life doesn't work that way. It's not what the Bible promises in this life. And if you doubt that, I just read the stories of people like Joseph and, and, and Job and Jesus, and, and you'll understand. You see, unless we get a handle on this, this whole topic about expectations, we're going to continue to live at the mercy of unmet expectations. And if enough discouragement and disappointment result, you may find yourself saying, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. I mean, I put, it, I put stuff in and I get nothing back. And you may seriously consider uh, throwing in the towel when it comes to your faith. And sadly, sadly, that's happened to countless Christians. So the question is, how do we not lose heart when what we expected did not happen, when what we expected was different than what we happened, when we expected it to be better and then not better, how do we deal with that? And we find some help with this whole idea in this passage that we're going to look at in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. So if you're not already there, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Now, by the way, if this is your first time here, welcome. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We're honored that you would uh, come to Fellowship Greenville, and you might be wondering, what is a Fellowship Greenville? And our desire is that you would experience who we are and what we're about uh, from your time with us this morning. And I will say, if you attend here on a regular basis, most often you'll find us studying our way through whole books of the Bible, and we're currently studying through the New Testament book, the letter of, uh, written to the Ephesians. And uh, one of the reasons that we approach the Bible this way and, and, and like to dig in deep is because um, the Bible presents us with an unseen reality that we may not be aware of or that we forget from time to time. The Bible tells us that this physical world is not all that there is, that there's a spiritual world, an unseen world of angels and demons and powers, and there are things going on behind the scenes not the least of which is this cosmic conflict between God and evil. And whether we like it or not, or whether we believe it or not, it really doesn't change the fact of that reality. And so one reason we read and study and reflect on what's written in Scripture is we need to see, we desperately need to see things as they really are so we can bring our lives in line with it. And so we're glad you've joined us this morning as we peek behind the scenes of the world that we see into the world that we don't see. Now, again, I said we are currently studying through Ephesians, and these people to whom Paul is writing, 
they're very discouraged because Paul was in prison and they're a big part of the reason why. Um, Ephesus, where these people lived, is on the western coast of what we now call Turkey. And Ephesus was a city made up of two kinds of people. There were Gentiles, Greeks, Gentiles and Jews. And as we've been saying, that these two groups of people hated each other with a passion. And Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus helping these people come to see that Jesus was not only the Jewish Messiah, but that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. And for about three years, Paul lived in Ephesus teaching the people about Jesus. And many, many Gentiles came to faith in Christ. And so Paul is like their leader. He's like their spiritual father in the faith. Well, when Paul leaves Ephesus and goes back home to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, uh, most of the people are what? Are they Jews or Gentiles? They're Jews in, in Jerusalem, right. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, and as he goes, he takes a friend of his from Ephesus, a man named Trophimus, with him. Now, what is the name? Is, a, is Trophimus a Jewish name or a Greek name? Greek name, all right. So, so he takes Trophimus with him, and he, and he goes into Jerusalem. He starts walking around the city with him. And by the way, you can read this story in Acts 21, 22. But again, as I said, there's this great hatred between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, it would be kind of like an American citizen walking into a Taliban training camp wearing a I Love America t-shirt. Like, I mean, if, if you do that, you know it's going to cause a lot of trouble. It's, it, and so Paul takes this foreigner into Jerusalem, and the Jews see him walking around the city with this Gentile. And they're afraid that he's taken Trophimus into the temple, into the temple area designated for Jews only. And the Jews are outraged, and they want to kill Paul. They want to stone him to death. And the Romans come, and they arrest Paul. But before they take him away... Paul asks if he can address the crowd, and the captain of the guard realizes that Paul can speak their language. He agrees to let him speak to the mob. So as Paul speaks, the Jews are listening, and everything is going fine until Paul comes to the place where he basically says, and God told me to go preach to the Gentiles. He told me to go reach people like this man Trophimus here. And the Jewish mob at that point, I mean, their heads blow off. And they really try to kill Paul at this point. And the Roman authorities come and they literally put uh, Paul above their heads and they carry him away. And Paul goes into the Roman judicial system and he's in there for about four years. Two years he's in prison in a city north of Jerusalem called Caesarea. And if you go to Israel with us, uh, you'll, we'll, we'll go to the very spot and they'll say this is probably like right in here is where there were prison cells and Paul was probably in one of these. But he stays in Caesarea two years, and then he goes on a long boat trip to Rome to stand trial because he's a Roman citizen. And he's in a Roman prison cell for another two years or so before he's put to death. At any rate, Paul's in custody. He's in jail for four or five years. And, and Paul's in jail when he hears that the Ephesian Christians, and we've already said this is a letter that was circulated among a lot of churches, so, but he hears that this group of churches, that he, some of which he's planted, some of which he's, he's taught in, he hears they're all depressed and discouraged about what's happened to him. I mean, they just couldn't make sense of what was going on. They thought the gospel train had run off the track. They couldn't understand why Paul their spiritual father in their faith, their friend, their leader, their teacher, the man who taught them 
for three years about the goodness of God and the grace of God, that the one true God, this man, this man had taught them about Jesus, the risen, ascended Christ, that he was ruling over his enemies in uh, the enemies of God's people in heaven and in earth, they could not figure out why God would let Paul be treated so badly. And if Jesus is victorious and ruling over all, then why is Paul not the recipient of that victory? Just didn't make any sense. It's certainly not what they expected or you would expect for that matter. Now, they had no doubt prayed for him for years and God wasn't answering their prayer. He's still in jail. And I mean, you would expect God to do something to take better care of one of his most committed servants, right? And, and because they couldn't see God doing anything to help Paul, they had lost the focus on what Paul had, been, had taught them and what the church was all about. So Paul writes this letter that we call the letter to the Ephesians to help them understand what was really going on. Now, by the way, have you ever wrestled with that kind of thing? Like, have you ever sat on the sidelines watching someone you know and love suffer and it just didn't make any sense? I mean, of all the people who deserve better, certainly this person deserves better. And, and, and maybe it got to you so deeply that you struggled in your own relationship with God. Maybe you laid awake at night praying and, and, and confused and wondering why God allows such bad things to happen to a godly person like that. I mean, have you ever been close enough to someone going through a time like that? It literally caused you to question your faith, caused you to question whether all this Christian life business is really worth it. That's not unlike the turmoil that these Ephesian Christians were going through. Now, the odd thing is about all this is that Paul is not discouraged, and he's the one in jail. So here's what I want to know. I want to know how is it that Paul feels good in a bad environment, and the Ephesians, who are in a good environment, they feel bad. They feel really discouraged. I think Walter Percy probably would ask the same thing. They feel so bad, in fact, they're losing heart. And that's what Paul says down in verse 13. So look down there. Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart over my suffering, which is your glory. See, they're on the edge of chucking the whole thing. And Paul is writing to them to give them hope to hang in there. He writes to give them eyes to see what they cannot see. So let's look at how he does that. Go back to verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Stop. Now, look at that. He says, for this reason. So the question is, for what reason? Well, he's referring back to what he just written about in chapter 2, that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross to bring Jews and Gentiles together as one new humanity, because of what Jesus has done to do away with the hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles, he says, for this reason, and then he's about to start praying. And you say, well, how, 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 how do you know that, Charlie? How do you know he's about to pray? Well, for one reason, that's the way he started his prayer back in chapter 1, verse 15. In chapter 1, he talks about all of these great spiritual blessings that have come to us in Christ and then after he rehearses all of those spiritual blessings, he prays that the Ephesians would have eyes to see that these blessings give them hope and it's these great blessings that give them their identity. 
So after going through, here's what God has done for you, he prays that they will get it. And that's what he's doing here. He's moved from all these incredible spiritual blessings that have come to us personally to the great spiritual blessing of God bringing Jews and Gentiles together as one people. And, he, and then he says, for this reason, and he prays that they will let that great blessing define them. So in verse 1, Paul starts to pray, but when he writes, I'm a, Chris, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he has a brain skip. And he feels he needs to explain what that means a little bit more. So he breaks from his prayer in verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, and he doesn't pick it up again to verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father. So you see, there, that's where Paul is going. For this reason I, Paul, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father. So both verses start with the exact same phrase, for this reason, and everything in between verse 1 and uh, verse thir- uh, 14, everything in between is a parenthesis. So again, in chapter 2, Paul's talked about how God's brought Jews and Gentiles together in one family. And now he wants to pray that the Ephesians will understand what God has done and how wonderfully significant it really is. And so he starts to write out a prayer which would have gone something like this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, I bow my knees to the Father from whom, and look at the topic. Why is he going to bow his knees? To give thanks and to praise the Father from whom every people in heaven and earth gets its name. So he's still talking about God being over all people. And he, but, 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 but as he said, when he says on behalf of you Gentiles, he thinks to himself, wait, I better, tell, I better tell you a little bit more about what God's doing behind the scenes. And how, hey, I want to tell you how my imprisonment factors into all that so you really understand the wisdom of God and the love of God in bringing Jews together with Gentiles into one body. And so you'll know that my suffering is for your glory. What's that all about? Just hold that thought for a minute. We'll come back to it in a minute. So in mid-sentence, he stops his prayer in order to say a little bit more about what he said back in chapter 2. And then he'll pick up his prayer again in verse 14. So you, you, you follow me here? Okay. Now, all this is very important to understand because it helps us understand how Paul could feel good in a bad environment. So let's read the parentheses. Verse 2. I know you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, for you Gentiles, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now, he's not talking about writing another different letter. He's talking about what he covered in chapter 1 and 2. That is, uh, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Verse 6, here it is. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone 
what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in the God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now here it is. Here's why he's writing. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, my suffering is ultimately for your greater good. Man, there's so much packed into this parentheses. But again, Paul's whole point is he doesn't want him to be discouraged because he's in prison. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm in prison because of what I was doing with Trophimus back there in Jerusalem. I'm here because I told those Jews about how God had called me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's saying, I'm in prison but that doesn't mean that the gospel train has come off the tracks. Everything that's happening is exactly, it's happening exactly the way that God wants it to happen. I'm a prisoner, he says, of Christ Jesus, specifically because I preach the gospel of your salvation. You see that? He's saying, don't you see what's happening? God has revealed something new, and he's revealed it to me. God has revealed a great mystery, something that people in earlier times didn't know, a mystery no one expected, and the mystery has to do with you Gentiles. Okay, so what exactly is the mystery? Well, when he uses the word mystery, he's not talking about something spooky or mysterious, and he's not talking about a whodunit kind of thing. In the Jewish way of thinking, a mystery was something that was hidden, but that now has been revealed. So what's the mystery. Okay, let me put it to you this way. Was the mystery that the Gentiles, that, that God was, would work to save the Gentiles? Was, was that the mystery? Was the mystery that, like in the, let me, let me say it this way. In the Old Testament, was it, was it ever revealed in the Old Testament that God loves the whole world and he wants all nations to be a part of his kingdom? Was that ever revealed in the Old Testament? Shake your head yes. Yes, it, in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, it talks about how God is going to work through the Jewish people. What did he say to Abraham in, in Genesis 12? He's going to work through the Jewish people and through the Jewish people, they would bless the whole world, the Jews would be a light to the nations so all the nations would see how great and good the God of Israel really is and that they would come to know the God of Israel through the Jewish people. So it's not a mystery that God would save Jews and Gentiles. Now, what is, so if that's not the mystery, then what is it? Well, verse six, here's the mystery. That these Gentile people, people are fellow heirs and in the Greek, the word fellow soon comes before each phrase. In other words, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the gospel, uh, of the promise of, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers of the promises. In other words, instead of having two separate groups of people with two separate identities, Jews and Gentiles, Jews saved, Gentiles saved, here, the, here's the mystery that was revealed to Paul, that in Christ, 
that there would only be one people so that everyone who comes to God through faith in Christ have one Father, one Savior, one Spirit, and therefore are one people. God is taking Jews and Gentiles and he's making one new humanity. And that's what Jason unpacked for us last week in chapter two. Uh, If you're looking in your your copy of the scripture, look back at chapter two, verse 14. Now, in other words, chapter three, verse six is one sentence summary of everything that he said in chapter two, which was for Christ himself is our peace who's made both groups into one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself in himself one new humanity in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and fellow members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So see, all of that is summed up in one verse in chapter three, verse six. So the mystery was not that God loved and wanted to save Gentiles. The mystery was that Jews and Gentiles would stand before God on equal footing, that there would be no longer be two groups of people in the world, but in Christ there's one people made up of all peoples, and that mystery was the church. The church wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but it was God's eternal purpose. It's what he always wanted. It is what he will have when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. What did God want? A world populated with diverse people living as one people under the headship of Christ. And the cross makes it possible. That's, listen, that's what the gospel is all about. Now, what I'm about to say may blow your mind. Paul was not arrested and thrown in prison. Paul did not die a martyr's death in Rome because he preached the gospel of personal salvation. He did not suffer and die because he was preaching that if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, that's all true. That's not why he was thrown into prison. No, he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He died a martyr for Christ Jesus because he preached that the Jews and Gentiles were now one new humanity in and through Christ. The gospel, the good news, is that God in Christ has reversed the curse that divided the nations, that God in Christ has abolished the law of commandments that separated Jews from Gentiles, and he's made both groups into one body in the church of Jesus. And the good news for you and me is we get to be a part of that. Salvation is not first about me and then about the church. The gospel is about the church and then about me and you getting to be a part of this great eternal plan of God. That's verse 7. Look at it. Of this gospel. What gospel? This two people into one people gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace 
which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given, what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this great mystery that was hidden for ages in God who created all things. Look at verse 10. Why did God work this way? Why did he do it? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. What is that? What is the manifold wisdom of God that God would bring together all people into one people? So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Did you get that? This is that unseen world I talked about earlier. What God is doing by bringing all people together in Christ, Paul says, makes angels, good and bad, stand back and go, wow, this is absolutely amazing. God has accomplished what he wanted from the very beginning, and he is now the father of all peoples. This is God's plan for God's church revealed. Look at it, verse 11. This was in accordance to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we all now have bold and confident access through faith in Christ. I mean, is that cool or what? I mean, what God has done in revealing his eternal plan for the church has cosmic ramifications, has ramifications in the physical world and in the spiritual world. What God has done and is doing through the church with this gospel of grace and peace makes angels and demons look, look over the balcony of the heavenly realms and go, oh my goodness, can you, can you even believe what's going on down there? Like this morning, like right here, this is something that the angels marvel about, that we could be a diverse people living together in unity and in peace. Because that was not the way the world worked back then. And God's plan for God's church revealed should cause us to shake our heads in wonder too. Now listen, don't expect when we all get to heaven that everybody's going to look like you. In fact, we won't even be in the majority. Like you realize, you realize of course that the whole, from a whole world perspective, the majority of Christians living in the world today are not American and most of them are not white. As far as God's kingdom is concerned, we're in the minority. We just can't see it right now. You see what he's saying? He's saying something big has been going on behind the scenes, and now it's broken into this world, and it affects me and you because God's put us right in the big middle of it. Now, here's the thing. All that explanation is important to understand why Paul was able to go through difficult times and not get discouraged. I call it persevering grace. The grace to persevere through difficult times. Remember what we said about expectations? When your experience doesn't match your expectations, you can easily become, what? Discouraged. Paul wasn't discouraged. He was encouraged. 
Paul was in a bad environment, but he was encouraged. Why? Because Paul's perspective on his circumstances and calling enabled him to live by persevering grace. His perspective allowed him to live by persevering grace. How so? Well, for one thing, Paul was not defined by his circumstances. Did you notice there in verse 1 how Paul described himself? He, Paul described himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not a prisoner of Rome. He didn't blame the Jews for being in jail. His identity was wrapped up in Christ and what Jesus had called him to do, and he believed that nothing could touch him unless God allowed it. So let me ask you a question. What determines your identity, your circumstances, or Christ? Do you see yourself as a prisoner of your problems, or do you see yourself as a child of God, loved, cared for, sustained by grace in the midst of your problems? You see, that's the biblical perspective that is informed by the unseen world that is our true reality. It's what God says about us. Not what our circumstances say about us. That is true reality. Now, the other thing I noticed here is uh, that Paul didn't expect things to be easy. Paul's perspective was not get it reasonably right and things will go reasonably well. Paul knew the intense hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles. So it wasn't a surprise to him. I'm sure he, I mean, he didn't like it, but it wasn't a surprise to him that the Jews would react the way they did when they saw him associating with the Gentile. He expected opposition when he boldly told the Jews that God had called him to preach to the Gentiles, especially when he had made it clear that God was breaking down century-old barriers of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and bring him together in Christ, into one body. He knew that wasn't going to go over very well. He didn't expect it to be easy. He expected hardship and harsh treatment. And but one, for one thing, the truth was, when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was told that he would have to suffer for Christ. He wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, telling him, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer will be persecuted. So Paul's perspective was reinforced by truth, not false expectations. But the Ephesians, like us, seem to expect just the opposite. They, we, seem to expect that if you live a reasonably good godly life, then God's kind of obligated to deliver you from the really hard stuff of life. And if he doesn't, it's just not fair. And now, again, it's not that we expect a problem-free life. No, we, we know there's going to be bumps and potholes and trials and twists and turns and troubles along the way. But we have a hard time accepting the fact that for some of us, we will go through terrible times of suffering that God will choose not to remove from our lives. And that's hard to hear, and it's even harder to accept. But that perspective runs through the entire Bible. You see, Paul's perspective on his circumstances and his calling enabled him to overcome false expectations. In other words, having the right perspective saved him from wrong expectations, which saved him from being disappointed with God and discouragement. So what was 
Paul's perspective. I mean, because for Paul, focusing on God's unseen reality saved him from unrealistic expectations. So what was Paul's perspective? Well, he doesn't tell us in this passage, but the same Paul that wrote Ephesians wrote 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we get, he, he lets us peek into his inner life. And this was his perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, So we do not lose heart. Why not? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How so? Because of this perspective. What perspective? This perspective. For this light, momentary affliction. Wait, 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 wait. You mean like these beatings and stonings and whippings and being shipwrecked and living out in the cold and the heat and being homeless and being in prison for two, three, four years? You call that light, momentary affliction? And Paul says, yeah, compared to eternity, it's light and momentary. That's his perspective. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, here it is. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. They're passing away. The physical world is passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul has got his eyes focused beyond the physical world of circumstances, and he's looking at eternal realities. So Paul did not lose heart because he could see beyond his troubles. He looked at what God was doing behind the scenes, and this two-world view, this two-world perspective, gave Paul the grace to persevere. So, how do we not lose heart when we expected things to be different? When we expected things to be better, how do we not lose heart? You got to change your expectations. You surrender them to God. You look beyond your circumstances and you ask God, this is what he's going to pray and we're going to come back and look at the prayer next week, but you ask God to give you eyes to see what you can't see so that your inner, inner person can be renewed, just like what Paul, that's in that prayer. I, I, I had that prayer, we were gonna do all that, and I thought, no, I'll just save it for next week. But you look beyond your circumstances, you change your expectations, you bring them in line with truth to look at what God is doing and what God has always done and what he's going to do, and you let that define who you are and you let that give you hope. Now, I mentioned Philip Yancey earlier, the author of Disappointment with God, and um, when Philip Yancey was doing research for his book, he was trying to find people who had gone through really rough times, and uh, he wanted to ask them questions, and he, he, he was looking for illustrations and, and material for the book. And in his research, he, he met a man named Douglas, whose life really reflected kind of a modern-day Job. Um, Douglas was a faithful follower of Jesus, and he trained for years and years uh, to, in, in the field of psychotherapy. And when he graduated, he turned down a lucrative career in that field in favor of starting up an urban ministry. So he's gotten this ministry off the ground, and one day his wife discovered a lump in her breast. Two years after the mastectomy, the cancer had spread to her lungs, and so Douglas 
took over many of the household and parental duties as his wife battled cancer and chemotherapy. And one night in the middle of the crisis, Douglas was driving down a city street with his wife and 12-year-old daughter when a drunk driver came across the center line and hit him head on. Douglas' wife was shaken up but not hurt. His daughter literally went through the windshield, but she had a broken arm and some facial cuts. But it was Douglas that received the worst injury, a, a, a massive blow to his head. And the, after the accident, Douglas suffered from severe headaches that caused him to be disoriented and forgetful. And worse yet, the accident permanently affected his vision because he had his left eye would wander and refuse to focus. And Douglas had to learn to cope with uh, that disability. And it was difficult for him because he was an avid reader. And literally, he has to stop after each page of a book and, and rest his eyes. So Yancey asked Douglas, can you tell me about your own disappointment with God? And also, what have you learned through all this that might help someone else going through a difficult time? And Douglas thought for a few minutes, and he said, To tell you the truth, Philip, I, I didn't feel any disappointment with God. The reason is this. He, he said, I learned first through my wife's illness, and then especially through this accident, not to confuse God with life. He said, I'm no stoic. I'm as upset about what happened to me as anyone could be. I feel free to curse the unfairness of life and to vent all my grief and anger. But I believe God feels the same way about that accident as I do, grieved and angry. And I don't blame him for what happened. He said, I have learned to see beyond the physical reality in this world to the spiritual reality. He said, we tend to think life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for crashing disappointment. God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. We must develop our relationship with God apart from our life circumstances. And we can learn to trust God despite all the unfairness of life. And then Douglas challenged Yancey by saying, go home and read the story of Jesus again. Was life fair for him? And he said this, for me, the cross demolished for all time the basic expectation that life will be fair. He has Paul's perspective. He's learned to conquer unmet expectations. The cross demolished for all time the basic, basic expectation that life will be fair. Pray with me. Father God, this is one of those messages where uh, I have to confess I'm preaching beyond my experience. And 
what we've talked about and what we've looked at in your word this morning, this word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it resonates in, in every one of our hearts. And, and we desperately need to have this perspective that Paul, that Paul had. We desperately need to be able to have our identities rooted in you and not in our circumstances. We desperately need to challenge expectations those expectations that make us think that life is fair, that life should be easier than it is. And God, because if, if we don't, then we can get to the same place that those Ephesians were getting to when they were losing heart and beginning to doubt who you are and how good you are. God, we don't want that to happen. I don't want it to happen to me. I don't want it to happen to anybody in this church. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take this word and not let us soon forget it. That you would take this word and drive it deeper and deeper into the very core of our being so that when we face times of disappointment and discouragement, that our faith would remain strong, that our faith would remain intact, and we could live in a way like this Douglas here, live in a way that puts your glory on display. I mean, what greater glory could we, could anyone give to you but to continue to praise you when you deny them the thing that they want most? Work in our hearts and lives, Holy Spirit, that we might be faithful joyful followers of Jesus for we ask this for his name's sake and your your greater glory amen